0: It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. It's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter. And coming up, we're talking about Arakow's secrets and other made-up phrases. And, of course, taking listener questions about all beautiful things in this universe. Because what else is there in this universe other than beautiful things? We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And you can follow along on our live stream or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And today's Blue Shift... I'll be talking about, beware, the quote from the scientist, but first, the news. Hey, space cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, you're Agent of the Stars. Got an exciting show for you today where we talk about all the amazing things in our universe which is a lot and this show lives on listener questions we record every Thursday at 8pm Eastern here in Spaceman Studios in New York City so you can leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get yourself on the air you can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world I am not joking about that I am not making it up well who knows I mean people show up I don't know where they, they could be down the street for all I know but they say they're out are from around the world and i take their word for it seriously folks i want you to send questions this show lives on questions like i said send me questions i answer them it's the show it's just that simple it's only astrophysics i've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops so get those questions in Before I start taking calls, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And in the news this week is all about Arakoth. Arakoth? I don't know how to pronounce these words. A-R-R-O-K-O-T-H. Arakoth, I'm going with. Formerly known as Ultima Thule. Formerly, formerly known as mu 2014, Something like that. It has the official designation of Arakoth. It's a little object in the Kuiper Belt, which is the leftover bits of our solar system. Icy debris that's just tossed around way at the outskirts. We're talking tens to hundreds of times further away from the sun than the Earth is. And the NASA spacecraft New Horizons visited Arakoth over a year ago after it did its historic flyby of Pluto. There happened to be a Kuiper Belt object very close to its original trajectory. Slight change, of course. They were able to do this flyby, the most distant flyby ever achieved by humanity. And I'm agreeing with the chat here with the space cadets. Ultimate Thule sounded way cooler but I'm not in charge of naming things as much as I want to be, so we're going to go with Arakoth. Now, the cool thing about Arakoth, if you've ever seen a picture of it, looks like a peanut it's two rocks that are glued together not smashed together and that's what's interesting after these detailed study uh because all the papers were released from those initial findings now these two objects weren't smashed together they they just kind of like a little valentine's kiss they they touched and they glued themselves together That bit of evidence, plus the fact that there aren't a lot of craters on Arakoth, seems to suggest that it's relatively calm out there. It's not such a violent place. Remember, this thing of rock, of ice and rock, is... 4.5 billion years old, this thing dates from the beginning of the formation of the solar system itself. And so it's a time capsule, you open it up, you look at the time capsule, and you get to learn what the universe was like back then. And you find out it was really, really chill. It was super low key some theories of planet formation are very violent where there's little bits and they crash into bigger bits and then the bigger bits crash into even bigger bits and then bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, So there's lots of crashing involved. But Arakoth is like, no, nah, man, no, nah, cool. You know what? You want to form a planet? You just go on ahead. You just gather up the material. I won't bother you. We don't fully understand how planets form. There are a lot of competing theories of whether they crash into each other, pebbles crash into each other, or if it's more smooth and gentle. The existence of Arakoth and its features seem to suggest that it's a little bit more on the gentle side, at least to start. As with most competing theories usually the correct answer is a little bit of column a and a little bit of column b so it looks like at least to start our solar system was gently accreting and gathering material and then maybe it got a little bit more violent as it got bigger you know as it entered puberty then it then it had some had some youthful indiscretions but its childhood was relatively benign so thank you cough, although you always be Ultimate Doulet in my heart. Remember to leave a voicemail or follow along with the Space Cadets at Spaceradioshow.com. And that's Lace for Grace when it comes to space. Let's answer some questions. We've got tons of Space Cadet questions ready to go. And I know you're excited as I am. So I'm just going to jump right in from the top. And we'll see. Some weeks I'm able to finish all of the space, get quite. Actually, that, that happened once. I think that happened once when I devoted like less than a minute per question, 30 seconds per question. I was able to get all of them in. We'll see. We're, we're just going to go. We're just going to live life as it comes all right and we're not gonna make any judgments we're not gonna have uh any preconceived conclusions we're just gonna let it roll edward hinton on youtube one of the space cadets is asking if we knew for certain that we are the only life in the universe should we send probes filled with dna and bacteria out into the cosmos well First, if we were to find out that we were the only life in the entire universe, we would just need to have a sit down and a think about it. Because that has some massive implications. Like the entire cosmos, all the stars you see in the sky, all the galaxies, we're talking hundreds of billions of stars per galaxy, hundreds of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. And we're the only ones? Talk about an existential crisis. Like, we're it. We're it, folks. Like, let's just let that sink in first. But then you gotta ask okay, is it our job to seed the universe with life? Well, I mean, it's not like anyone else has any claims to it, so we might as well. I don't know the best. Possible path to spreading life throughout the galaxy. Maybe it's capsules, space capsules filled with DNA, and hope they crash on planets. That seems a little bit dicey. It's this whole panspermia idea. Man, it's hard to get living things lasting for tens of thousands of years, it's hard to get them to survive atmospheric reentry, and just plopping them down on a random bit of rock doesn't necessarily mean that they'll sprout. But we got to figure out something. But hey, if we're the only ones and we got the whole universe to play around in and we've got plenty of time and we manage not to kill ourselves – I'm sure we'll come up with a solution. I don't know what the best solution is, but, um, you know, that's somebody else's problem. Arnetta Davis over on YouTube is asking, I've been seeing a lot of questions about Beetlejuice because it's been fading and shrinking. Do you think it will go supernova? Okay, Beetlejuice Betelgeuse, and I'm not going to say it three times. The star in the shoulder of Orion, it's a red giant star, easily visible with the naked eye. It is a red giant star. It's massive. If you plopped it in our own solar system, it would stretch like the asteroid belt or something ridiculous. It is going to pop. It is going to go supernova any day now. Where any day now means astronomical day now, which means any million year from now. Maybe it'll be this million years. Maybe it'll be next million years. Maybe it'll be the eighth million years from now, but any million years from now. Beetlejuice is a red giant. Oh, I said it three times. Dang it. Mm. Fine. Fine. I'll just have to suffer the consequences of that. This star is going to go supernova. Is it going to go supernova tomorrow? Probably not. It might, but probably not. Is it going to go supernova this year? Probably. Like exceedingly small chance that it will go supernova. It is doing some funky things. It is getting dimmer, a little bit dimmer than average, relatively quickly. But man, these big stars are just like the stars, the human stars. They are unpredictable. Sometimes they're they're worldwide and they're famous and they're blazing bright. And sometimes they're a lot quieter and just sticking to themselves. They're not in the papers a lot. Sometimes they're making news. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes these big stars are flaring and getting bright. And sometimes they're getting dimmer. They just do, okay? They're just a little bit unstable and unpredictable, and we just have to live with it. And what a cool testament to the era of astronomy that we live in that we can watch a star evolve in real time. Day by day, we know how Betelgeuse is behaving On a very precise level. Am I the only one that thinks that's cool? No, because you should think that's cool too, all right? It's just, it's cool. We get to watch a star live and breathe. And so, of course, it's gonna be news because it's gonna be doing cool stuff every single day. It's not the only star doing cool stuff every single day. So let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy it. Let's go along on the Beetlejuice ride. I'm going to take a quick break, folks, before I start answering some more space cadet questions. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going. And if you're one of those people who think, wow, I really like this show, Uh, I want to support, but I'm sure other people are supporting it. Yes, other people are supporting it, but so should you. If you want to, now's a good time. What are you waiting for? Patreon.com slash pmsutter. You can also go to Space Radio. Show.com and there's a link to patreon right there i'll see you after the break welcome back everyone i'm paul sutter and this is space radio we've got more space cadet questions ready to go but remember you can leave a voicemail or join the live stream space cadets here at 8 p.m thursday by going to spaceradioshow.com I was looking at this stream from the Space Cadets. I asked them if they thought Beetlejuice was going to blow in the next, you know, soon. Let's just call it soon. Very divided room. Very divided room. Half yes, half no. I proposed if it's not going to do it on its own, can we make it blow up? Can we shoot a giant laser at Beetlejuice to make it blow up? How can we make this happen? Surely someone has the plans for it. Let's start blowing up stars for our own entertainment. Especially if we're the only life in the universe. Then let's do it. Let's just start. Hey, that star. I don't like to look at that star. You know what? I want a different constellation. Let's blow up that one. Who cares? No one else. No one's going to complain. Except for some bits of rock. Speaking of bits of rock, we got a question here from the space cadets uh, from Infinite Monkey. Over on YouTube, does Arakoth destroy the theory of violent planet formation? Arakoth is what I talked about at the top of the show. This bit of ice and dust in the outer bits, regions of the solar system. It's very gentle. It's very mild. It doesn't look like it had a violent past. Does this put to rest theories of solar system formation that rely on violence, on a lot of things smashing into each other? Yes, but kind of no, but kind of Yes. The answer is it's much more nuanced and much more complicated than that. It appears that at least Arakoth or the outer bits of the solar system formed initially very gently. But the gentle formation mechanisms don't get you big planets like Earth and Mars. You need a bit of violence to get a big, rocky planet going. So maybe it's a little bit of both. Moving on to other space cadet questions. Campbell Duncan, are modern satellites required to have a way to deorbit themselves when their time is up? A lot of satellites can last for a very long time in orbit, especially if they're solar-powered. If they don't have a lot of moving parts, if they're powered by the sun, they can just keep going and going and going. But eventually, either they get decommissioned or defunded or they do break or something happens. And then what do we do with them? Nothing. Sometimes, sometimes we intentionally deorbit a satellite, let it burn up in the atmosphere or plunk it down in the Pacific if it's big enough. But... For the most part, we just let them hang out in space. We've been doing a very bad job at forward thinking in terms of satellites because we always assume that there's more space up there. And it's just fine. It's just someone else's problem, whatever. Okay, we're done with the satellite. Okay, just leave it hanging because there's plenty more space in space. Except when it's done. Expect when to run out of space hopefully future satellites will begin to employ this like, yes if it will have an end of life procedure if the satellite's done we're going to burn it up in the atmosphere but right now no it's the wild west up there it is the wild west nancy over on youtube is asking what are your thoughts or comments about brian green's idea that there was a configuration of energy in the early instance of the universe that resulted in something called repulsive gravity Repulsive gravity is a thing. You can have anti-gravity in our universe. It's just really, really tricky to get it. And so far in the present day universe, we only see it happening once or in one place or one condition. We call that dark energy. The accelerated expansion of our universe is an anti-gravity. It is a repulsive gravity. We have no idea what's causing it. It's a separate show. But It exists. We believe that in the early universe, there was also a period of repulsive gravity, something we call inflation. Inflation made the universe... Much, much bigger in a very, very short amount of time. We don't know what caused inflation. We don't know how long it lasted. We don't know a lot of the details, but we're pretty sure something like inflation happened. It's the only way to explain certain kinds of observations that we're making of the early universe. So something definitely funky was up in the early universe and like less than the first second we're talking early, something funky was up we're not exactly sure what moving on alien of soul 3 youtube is asking i know planets can migrate inwards towards a star when they encounter gas and dust and slow down you know friction can a planet migrate outward away from a star and if so how yes planets can migrate away from a star but they can't do it through uh, or they can do it By interacting with all sorts of things, it's all a game of gravity. If they get too close to a giant planet, the gravity of that giant planet can yank on them, can give them a boost, can give them some extra energy, and send it moving further out in the solar system, and potentially out of the solar system altogether. We think... That our four giant planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, actually all formed much closer together and much closer to the sun than they are today. Then Jupiter migrated inwards and through that destabilization kicked the remaining three further out in the solar system until they eventually settled in their modern day configuration. So this was an interaction between Jupiter and the other giants that sent them migrating outwards. So it can happen. It can happen. It's a little bit tricky for it to happen, but it can definitely happen. In fact, this is how we think the Kuiper Belt itself formed, like objects like Arakoth, we think formed much closer, but they're during this phase of outward planetary migration, all the material and debris that was left over also moved with them and got pushed into higher orbits. Edward Hinton over on YouTube is asking how do we know any of our solar system planets are not captured uh, from some other system like some rogue planet wandering in and then we happen to capture it the reason we think all of our planets in our solar system formed right here in the solar system is one they have a very similar abundance of say radioactive elements and certain percentages of elements so it looks like we're all made of basically the same stuff we came from the same soup. And the second is, capturing a planet is harder than you expect. A rogue planet that's just roaming the galaxy is traveling at an incredible speed. It has a lot of energy. And to actually capture it and settle it in a solar system is one very, very challenging because the, the trajectories and the energies and the orbits have to line up just so in order to enable that capture. And then once a new planet is introduced, that it's like a bowling ball. It just wrecks other things in the solar system. and can mess everything up. And we have no evidence of Everything being messed up to that degree in our solar system. So as far as we know, all the planets in our solar system did form right here. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, but before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And... I read news articles, like, I don't know, once a month or something, and sometimes they're on topics of science, and sometimes they involve quotes from a scientist. Yeah, a little sound bite, a little bit of context, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I want you to know that you should take any quote from a scientist that appears in a news article with a massive grain of salt, not because the scientist is lying or trying to tell an incorrect truth, something incorrect, or fabricating something, and not because the reporter is lying, or the reporter is trying to slant something, or the reporter is being uh, unethical. No, 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 no. It's all unintentional. It's all unintentional. I get interviewed every once in a while. People, reporters, reach out to me, ask me a bunch of questions, either by email, or on the phone, or Skype, or something. And then the article comes out. And then I read the article, and I say, hey, I wonder what I said. The quotes are always, like, accurate and faithful. They might be shorter versions of what I actually said, but they capture the essence. I've very rarely run into the case where a reporter has actually taken a quote and mangled it or or put words in my mouth, something that's incredibly rare. But what I do see a lot is reporters and I don't blame them, not understanding a nuance or context of a particular situation. A reporter isn't an expert in science. Why should they be? They're an expert in reporting. And some of the topics they cover are are detailed and nuanced and have a lot of views and there is no yes or no and it is actually a bit fuzzy and Sometimes I try to convey that nuance to say, "Well, yes, but blah 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 blah," and then the blah 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 gets cut off. Or if I just make say something cheeky or smart alecky, ninety nine percent chance that that's what ends up being the quote because it sounds cool and it's a fun juicy quote. Usually, reporters they're on a deadline, as uh, Larry Beckham on the Space Cadet YouTube. Uh, one of the space cadets is saying, yeah, it's, it's usually, it's not bad reporting or what we see as bad reporting is really just reporters having a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it. I cut them some slack. I still host interviews. I write, you yeah, know, I still provide quotes, but when you see a quote, know that it just know that it may not be the full picture. That's all. That's all. <laughs> And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com/slash/pmSutter to learn how you can keep this show going. Thanks to Greg Amobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBU Radio 90.5 FM in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and visit space radio showcom for all the links and the live stream locations patreon all that and of course thank you again space cadets for listening i'll see you next week and remember science is for sharing and transmission One hundred and sixty five days of astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After ten years, the three. 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.